Blog Talk Radio. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, no matter where you're listening, around the world, this is Sedona Talk Radio. Hello, hello, and this is Helena, Helena Steiner-Hornstein, with our wondrous world, speaking to you yet again from Miami, Florida. It's a sunny and lovely day here. We've had a beautiful holiday week. Uh, it's been just a dream world. And I've heard it's been lovely just about everywhere else also in the world. I have uh, my guests with me today. They are Peter Ressler and Monica Mitchell Ressler. They are in New York. And are you there, both of you? We're Hi, Helena. <laughs> yeah, hello. <laughs> Thank you so much for being on my show. I um, <clears throat> would like to just uh, give a couple of announcements first, and that is that anyone who would like to receive my newsletter, it has just gone out. If you didn't get it, just get back with me again, and you can reach me at www.speakingtoyourheart.com. Next uh, week or in two weeks, because I make this show now only, twice a month, as from this month, because I'm going to be on European uh, speaking tour. I will have uh, uh, guests um, uh, guests from Europe, uh, activists um, who are speaking on global warming and what they are doing to help us out. I will also have a member of the Swedish parliament speaking on healthcare and how it has worked with the socialized system regarding healthcare in Sweden, what went well and what didn't go so well, and what they are changing to make it work much better. So those are things that you could already, if you are not able to make the live shows where you can listen and call in, you can email me with questions, particularly about the healthcare system in Sweden, since they're now going to include alternative uh, treatment in the healthcare system, which is going to be interesting. So just email me. This is not a live show, so you can not call in, but you can always email me afterwards, and I will pass on the questions to my guests. We have Monica Mitchell um, Ressler, and Monica is the executive director and editor in chief of Good Business International. She is an internationally renowned leader in the Better World Business Movement. That should be very interesting to talk about. And she is also the COO of um, a, a Wall Street firm called the, um, uh, what is it called again? The Ressler <laughs> Mitchell Group. Right. Yes, that's right. And Peter Ressler is uh, also a very recognized expert on Wall Street. He's very respected in Wall Street, and he is the CEO of the same company, RMG Search, where you both are working. And you are uh, two big names, and you are very active in Wall Street, on Wall Street. And what is happening right now? What has, what has happened to us lately? What happened to Wall Street? It's, it seems that everything has fallen apart. What do you say, Peter and Monica Ressler? I guess the best way to put it is we sort of took our eye off the ball uh, regarding things like value and things like trust. And, you know, it started um, the mortgage securities market, which basically takes all of the monthly payments that we all make as homeowners into our mortgages and pools them together into one big lump sum cash flow. And, those loans traditionally have been credit-worthy loans. In other words, uh, loans, mortgages made to people with good credit, solid jobs, and the chances of uh, people defaulting on those loans were quite low. And those monthly cash flows that we all make on our mortgage payments get put together into what, what's called a bond. It's a security. And that security is then uh, traded on the open market and sold to investors. And uh, these securities typically yield more than the more traditional treasury bonds or corporate bonds. 
And what started happening was as that market became a bit saturated, uh, people at the, in the banking community and people on Wall Street who were making very good money from these securities decided that they would lower their standards around the credit that they were issuing, and they started to create what, what we call subprime mortgages or subprime loans. Subprime meaning less credit worthy. And the, the risk of default became higher because we started making loans to people requiring less of a down payment, requiring less of a monthly income. Uh, they started making loans to some people who really had uh, spotty work experience and, and histories. And thinking that um, if you lump those loans together with more creditworthy loans, the risk would be dispersed. But that's actually not what happened. What happened was as these loans started to default and these loans were the, and securities were distributed worldwide, all over the world investors were buying these. Once they started to default because the housing market started to flatten out, um, it created a systemic what I'll call virus that has uh, unfortunately come to impact all of us, um, not just on Wall Street, but all over the world. Yeah. Um, we have to, I would like to go back a little bit more here in history, not very far back, but let's go back eight years when we had 9-11, September 11. Uh, and... Uh, I remember I met you after I've been speaking at the United Nations, and you gave me a book you had just written, and I read it with great interest. It was about your experience uh, of the 9-11 and what happened to Wall Street after that. And I took that book with me on my lecture tour to Europe and waved it you know, up high, and I said, you know, Wall Street has changed. They are now becoming more spiritual, and your book is also called Spiritual Capitalism. Uh, can you tell me what happened uh, after the 9-11 uh, catastrophe in, in, in Wall Street? Uh, right after 9-11, um, not just New York and Wall Street, but and the firefighters in New York that um, became very well known for their um, rescue efforts. But all around the world, there was a feeling of unity. There was a feeling of um, natural unity, a bond of, you know, let's pull together. It was hor uh, horrifying to any um, person of character, which I think the majority of the human race is. Um, yes. I was in Europe at the time, and I was so hit by that myself, although I wasn't in the country. I couldn't sleep for three nights because right. of what happened. Yes, and I have um, half my family lives in Germany, and my cousin from Berlin actually emailed me immediately and said that there were prayer vigils in uh, Germany at that point, and um, we heard this from friends all around the world, all around the country, all around the world. Everyone became... Uh, you know, in solidarity with the people that had suffered on the planes and the people in New York, um, the innocent 3,000 people that died in the buildings. It was very, very tragic. And I think tragedy sometimes, uh, which is what we're seeing in this economic crisis um, and what we're trying to inspire with this, brings out the best in people. It can bring out the worst and it can bring out the best. One, one of the things I like to point out to people about 9-11, because it became so politicized after that and became... Um, a really difficult, destructive um, concept uh, was that initially, when 9/11 hit, when when the attack hit, every most people had your response, Helena. It was more of, "What can I do to help?" and a simpatico feeling of concern and mutual concern for the people that had suffered in the um, attack. And that I like to point out, and so does Peter, this is what we talk about when we go out on the road. We talk about the fact that in the first few weeks and first few months of after 9-11, it was not a political eff uh, event. It was a human event where human suffering was the common denominator. And more people than not, like I would say 85% of the world, really cared about what happened because that's the basic in instinct in a human being. The basic instinct in a human being at the core soul level is about mutual concern and um, you could even say love for, for fellow humanity. 
Yes, very, very true. And the feelings for America and for these people were so genuine and so deep all over the world. It was just fantastic. How did it change your business approach? And uh, you mentioned some other people who really left Wall Street and left all business and just changed their lives. Was that so? Well, it, it changed our lives in, in many ways. And, and I guess the first way was it, we started to think about what what is really important to us. Uh, is it our bank account or is it our families and our lives? And when you're faced with the potential loss of life or loss of family, um, at least for me and for Monica, you know, we started to realize that, wow, well, number one, the most important thing that we have is each other and our our relationship uh, and the love that we feel for each other. No one on Wall Street that day was thinking about their trading portfolio or their bank account. They were on this on their phones trying to reach out to the people that they cared most about to make sure they were okay. What we also saw that day was an extraordinary effort by not just the firemen, but the the civilians um, who, instead of running out of the building, ran in and helped those who were infirm or pregnant or people who had difficulty getting out. And it sort of brought the best, we saw the best of people come out on that day. For Monica and I, we also realized that the service that we saw the firemen provide we actually came to realize that in business, everything in business is a service. And we started thinking about business differently. It forced us to, you know, really examine, you know, what is business? Well, business provides a service or a product to another human being that will somehow enhance their lives. And if if you remove that enhancement or you remove that benefit, you know, then the business will not survive. So the combination of uh, all those events and all those feelings led us to um, undertake um, what I would call a mission of awareness uh, to try to get people to understand that, hey, there is an inherent service in every single business. And if we take our eye off the ball and if we're mistakenly believe, as we're taught from the time we're very young, that the purpose of business is to profit for ourselves only, then, you know, we're making an enormous mistake around that. And as we think about and see the damage that's been done from this crisis of credit, we realize that, in fact, that that, uh, belief system that is true. Because the guys that created this problem were only thinking about themselves and themselves alone. And that's actually, um, that's become the American and Western model of um, capitalism, which is what we're really out to change. Um, There has to be a way to balance money and and matters of the heart. And and that, you talked about Swedish health care system and about how... um, It's one of the, the best healthcare systems in the world, I think, uh, nationalized healthcare systems. And it started off one way, but it developed, developed into a new direction. So it's not as good as it was to start with. Okay. It was okay. just getting too expensive, I think. Yeah. But it's a very good system, and people feel safe about getting sick and going to the hospital, of course. Well, there's the balance. I mean, in America, uh, one of the things... Um, that's long been here, this Western model of, of thinking in terms of taking care of yourself and I don't want to take care of anybody else. And I'm really about individualism, my own independence, and that will serve the greater community. That's been the Western, the American model. And we see, um, I guess, the other extreme in Sweden where we're going to all take care of those who need it and it can become very costly. I know even in Germany, they were reducing, before the economic crisis, they were reducing some um, ordinary uh, social services, like unemployment was being reduced more to an American style, not quite to that extreme, but, yeah. but, but you know, shorting, shortening the, the period of time you got unemployment rather than for life, maybe for two years. 
because it just got too expensive. And I think yeah. the wealth, everything is back to the money. Of course, yeah, where yeah. is it coming from? Well, that's the key. How do you find that balance? And that's um, we're working on a new um, business model for exactly that. That's really what the work of spiritual capitalism is. What the work of uh, Good Business International, which we call Good B, it's at goodbe.net. Um, the entity that's it's a web media think tank where we have people writing articles and um, all sorts of business and economic, you know, uh, economics experts discussing new ways of doing business. How to balance that exact thing that you know we're talking about with social services and how to make money at the same time because we do have to live. We do need money to live. And we enjoy that prosperity. Yes, unfortunately, we do need money to live. And uh, I have noticed, though, is it just my own observations? It seemed during the past few years that rich people are getting richer and poor people are getting poorer. Is there a truth to that? Well, the system set up that way. And it's been um, – there was a period of time, and I could talk about um, a little bit more about the American model, which was sort of the formation of the model in Great Britain, and uh, in fact, you know, um, the United Kingdom is so Americanized, it's not even funny the way that their system works. And I think a lot of people started taking the American lead uh, post World War II. Um, but there, but for about 50 years, there was more of an egalitarian response where, okay, you know, we're going to make money, but it's not going to be um, like the Gilded Age was a hundred years ago. Uh, and we've, but we've returned to that in the past 25 years, and I think that's directly related to the deregulation of the um, of the markets, which um, the American markets are connected to the global markets. So I think it's happened all the way around. There's been a, it's more of a struggle for ordinary people to make a living, and so, but at that at their expense. Um, the wealthy are gaining wealth, more and more wealth, less taxes, less um, obligation to the community as a whole. Now, a lot of wealthy people understand that they have a responsibility to give back, so they do in their own way, in their own time. But the um, the obligation to do that, like what you were talking about in, in uh, Sweden, which can become costly, has really been separated from the money-making model. The money-making model has not included... Um, in recent years, in the past 25 years, at least on this side of the um, Atlantic, uh, a, a, an ethic of giving back to society. It's all been what about me? It's what's in it for me. And yes, and I do think that um, you know the disparity between the rich and poor has gotten extremely, extremely um, dangerous levels. And I think that's what we're seeing now in this economic crisis. Yeah, and I've seen that down in Florida, of course, uh, where I live. I see people cannot uh, live here and work here. You really, you just live here to to spend time here. But if you have to make a living, people cannot, teachers cannot afford the prices of the real estate anymore, so they cannot live here. Or those working in offices uh, and in shops and so on, they cannot afford to buy a home uh, and live where they work. Yes, right. It's been a huge disparity of wealth. And I think that's what we're experiencing now. In part, you know, as painful as this crisis is, it was necessary um, it you know the the difference it, we're almost back to the old monarchy system you know the feudal system that yeah. we all you know most of us uh, or a lot of us emanated from in um, Europe and in Asia and all around the world it was just such a disparity of wealth that um, we fought revolutions on all around the world and and I think this is what we're going to see now we're going to see an economic revolution here you know the, I think the, it's the, come to that I think that's really good like a hurricane blowing through the system. <laughs> It has it is, sorry, interrupted you. What are you going to say? Well, uh, I was just going to talk about the fact that things are so far out of balance, and and no matter what you're talking about, whether you're talking about business, whether you're talking about the the you know the ecological and biological system, you know everything is constantly seeking a balance, and the more the further out of balance things become. Um, you know, the greater the rebalancing efforts are, and which w will eventually occur. And when things become so far out of balance, there's a tremendous amount of pain and suffering in order to rebalance. One of the things that we're shining a light on at Good Business International is goodbe.net, 
is how to achieve the balance between making money and making a lot of money because we are capitalists and, you know, uh, not hurting another person in that process and being aware of and understanding conceptually that um, there are so many ways of making a lot of money while you can enhance the lives of other people. And the the flaw in the model, which which has become so out of control now and, and so far out of balance, is the simply what's in it for me, take the money and run uh, mode of capitalism. That That's over. You know, that's, yeah. that's done. And one of the things that uh, we are um, very, very sure um, can be created from those who are extremely intelligent and smart on Wall Street and other parts of the business is to redirect that intelligence and that brain power uh, into a way that, yes, we can profit, but how do we profit? Can we come up with something that will actually have a positive and beneficial effect on other people's lives? So, um, and I'm going to talk much more about what you are doing uh, with the better business, a good best, good business movement. Uh, I uh, would like to ask you, how do you feel that the bailout is going to work? I have heard uh, people are really very, very annoyed with the banks because they are not giving them any loans anymore, and they know that the banks have the money or have been given the money. So what, 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 what is, why are they holding back? Why are the banks holding back on the money? They have been given the money. What are they using the money for? Um, they're using it to sit on it. I mean, they're hoarding it. There was no string. There were no strings attached to it. The government didn't say, "Okay, you know, um, you must. You're required by law to lend this." Which um, they haven't even said now. Not even Obama, who's moved much closer to um, forcing the issue with the banks. It's still on the good guys. You know, uh, the good good guys of the banks. Okay, listen, we'll give you this money. That's what um, Hank Paulson had done. We'll give you the $700 billion and go ahead and pay off your bad debts and go ahead and start lending again. And there was no strings attached because they thought naturally they're going to go ahead and need to lend again, but they forgot that once you give somebody $700 billion or an entire industry, they don't really need to lend for too long. So I think the the first initial mistake they made out of the box was to expect these very um, self-serving institutions who basically pull down the uh, global economy to actually do something for the greater community. That was the first mistake yeah. they made. So you are saying that the banks are actually sitting on the money and allowing themselves to just use it their way without helping the people out there who really need it. That's exactly what they're doing, and they're still going to do it. This latest TALF program, which Peter can talk about more directly because he's directly involved with it, is probably going to work out the same way because the inherent problem is, and this is even with Obama, who we absolutely adore, um, but he's you know relying on the same people that have been in this um, in the Treasury and in government for 20 years. It's the same exact yeah. people. Um, that were there that created this problem, including Larry Summers and Tim Geithner, um, there, this, this is an inherent problem. They just said they were giving money out to small businesses, $15 billion, but they actually did not give money out for small business loans or consumer loans. They actually gave a guarantee to banks across the U.S., if you loan to small businesses and consumers, we will back you up. We will guarantee those loans for you up to 90% and small amounts, actually, for the um, like $35,000 loans. And the result is the banks aren't moving. I mean, I think the government's going to have to come in and lend directly because we are a system of credit. We've been a system of credit um, civilization since for 4,000 years in some form or another. So it's kind of an organic process to have credit. There's another problem here, too, uh, and that is the losses that are sitting on the balance sheets of these banks. When we did the TARP program initially, the idea was we're going to give you the money and you're going to lend it out. What the public wasn't told was that the toxic assets or the bad loans and the bad securities that were sitting on the balance sheets of the top five or 
10 banks in the, in the world were so uh, enormous that once they got that money, they kept it because if they had lent it out, they would have still had to deal with the losses on their balance sheets. Now, as these banks go through these stress tests, and it's becoming closer and, you know, we're getting closer and closer to really understanding how bad it is. The fear is that if the public knows that there's multi-billion of dollars of additional losses on the balance sheets of these banks, everybody's going to come and run their, pull, pull their money out. And so they're not telling the public that. In the meantime, the public's not seeing any relief from their own money being given to these banks. And so it's a sort of a chicken and egg, you know, uh, yeah. kind of a situation where, you know, eventually it's going to come to fruition where the losses will have to be realized. And once those losses are realized, and that's why Monica's saying we need to lend directly to the small, medium, and large businesses because those that's the that's the the basis of our whole economy is you know how does the money circulate the money is supposed to circulate it circulates through credit well one of the greatest surprises i had was um i i've heard a lot of um because we're right in the middle of wall street we've heard a lot of wall street people um at the top not the middle they don't talk like this they are actually much more connected to ordinary um, americans but at the top, they've been talking about banking presidents and, and investment banking presidents. They've been talking about how the consumers created this situation. I read um, at, at the Davos in Switzerland conference at the World Economic Forum, um, Jamie Dimon, the head of J.P. Morgan, one of the um, you know the biggest uh, sources of credit default swaps, complicated. Um, well, not so complicated, but they make it complicated. A, a credit derivative that actually is the source of the AIG problems and a lot of the other problems in the global economy. He said it was really the the whole system broke down because consumers took too much credit because banks gave them too much credit, and that was because regulators didn't restrict the banks. Now, here's the head of a bank. <laughs> a global bank telling you that. So I thought yeah. that was ironic. There's no sense of responsibility there. They've they've lost a sense of obligation to the greater community. Yeah, of course, uh, America is the uh, country of credit. You don't get credit in the same way in Europe, for instance. Everyone has uh, a credit card, but it's more like a debit card you take from your own account, whereas here you are making you are taking a loan when you use the credit card. Yeah, so I, it's a different system. I'm not in the United Kingdom. It's pretty much very similar to the United States, actually. Mm -hmm. They're yeah. running basically um, uh, the same way we are. And the irony of what you said is true. That's true for the individual people, say, in Germany or in the Scandinavian countries, maybe not Italy necessarily, but in France, too. Um, yet the, the big businesses over there are not running like that. One of the most... Um, the most remarkable surprises that I learned through this whole process, because we didn't even know about this, was that the um, investment banks, which are global investment banks, I mean, they have people from all over the world investment invested in them, and the commercial banks, were levered at 30 to 40 to 1. So that means that for every dollar you had, you borrowed 30 to $40. Now, I don't know even people in the United States that hold credit cards that are even able to borrow 30 to $40 for every dollar in assets they have. It's just not possible. Nobody would ever give you that kind of loan. In fact, the question for the American consumer is that they were giving out loans, credit card debt, and mortgages that, that amounted to one-third of their income. So that would be one-third of their income, not 30 times their income. But this is what the banks and the investment banks did in the United States, and that obviously they have a global reach around the world, and they did this in Europe as well. This is not a surprise. They did this in Europe. They did it in Asia, in, in Japan and a lot of the Asian countries. They levered at 30 to 40 to 1, and that's not just American banks. That is, um, you know, Royal Bank of Scotland. That's um, uh, even Barclays was levered at high levels. UBS was levered at 35 to 1, and that's a Swiss bank. Um, so it isn't just America. They took the American model, 
And I think Americans are shocked to know that their banks were were leveraged at that high level. And and that only happened in 2004 when there was a meeting at the SEC, at Securities and Exchange Commission, where Hank Paulson, who became the Treasury Secretary two years later, ironically, he petitioned the SEC along with the other heads of the other investment banks that they wanted to de-lever, they wanted to de-limit the leverage um, they had a leverage limit of 10 to 1. You can only have 10 borrowed dollars for every dollar of assets you had. And he asked them successfully, um, and they petitioned it. It was called the net capital rule, and they reversed it. And that's the reason why, um, one of the main reasons why we're in this situation today. The net capital rule was a law that was on the books for 35 years? Yeah, 35 years. Mm-hmm. Yep, and they reversed it in a 45-minute meeting at the SEC. It was that a, no one knew about. Yeah, I think it was April 28, 2004. So if you ever look it up, it's the net capital rule, and it's. Uh, I think you know some listeners might be interested in that. It's, it's astonishing, and that that it, it thing, is so interesting what you have to say. Yeah. Um, it, it and of course this is what happens. The general population has no idea what's going on. Uh, on the top level of of the banking system, do they? We have no idea what's happening. No. There's a trust there um, that um, has been violated. You know, uh, the uh, average person believes that their government and their financial system will do the right thing and will protect their interests. And what we've seen over the last eight years is the exact opposite of that. The only interests that they were protecting were their own. The only interests that they were concerned with were their own. And they got very, very, very rich at the expense of the average person. Now, one of the things we are doing with Good Business International, GoodBe.net, is we are attempting to raise the awareness of the average person all over the world so that they can understand, better understand what is what exactly is going on? Now, I believe that Obama is is one of the only, if not well, not the only, but one of the first presidents uh, in in a long, long time that has his head and his heart connected. And I believe that his intentions are absolutely correct and right. Unfortunately, he's surrounding himself with people who come from the old school which is, you know, profit at any cost, and, you know, you're a buddy of mine, and I'll take care of you, I'll watch your back. Um, And, you know, I think what's really, really imperative here is for those who are in what we'll call here the middle class or the upper middle class understand how the system works. The system has brought us to failure. There are reasons for that. And the more people that understand why the system didn't work and how it got broken, that's when we will start to begin to fix it. And it's going to be a model that we've never seen before. It's going to be entirely new. Uh, it's so I, I let you speak here all the time because you really know your subject, and I have no idea really what goes on on Wall Street. But um, I know you are bringing in a new concept of business which is what you have mentioned a couple of times about Good Business International. Can you first tell our listeners how they can read up on you and the, the address, the email addresses, and, and uh, your website? Yes, it's www.goodb, that's good, G-O-O-D-B, as in business.net. And there's a blog there that people can join in um, and uh, we, we highlight some of the things that we know are going on behind the scenes on Wall Street. Uh, it's In general, it's all about global business. We have um, a writer from France. We have a writer from Berlin. We have writers from uh, different parts of the world that write in and write articles and share them. Um, and all over the United States, we have spiritual leaders writing about the economy. We have economic e- economists writing about, um, uh, you know, matters of values and and the heart so it's it's a very enlightened innovative provocative uh site and it's all about the trends that are um happening in good businesses an awful lot of people we're talking about now the people who were dehumanized that were disconnected from the um common person there's a lot of people in this world who are now um who have been doing things for a very very long time um and to change the dynamic of business 
profit for any uh, at any cost. They, there's been a movement going on from for years now. We've been part of it since 9/11, really in a big way, to um, create a business for a better world, and that's what we call it: uh, better better business for a better world. That's goodbeat.net. And what it is is five stars of good business. It, it includes um, environmental sustainability. It includes um, profits and purpose, how we combine profits and purpose. And I think that's the biggest thing that we misunderstand in business is that, as Peter said earlier, business is a service. It's a service for everybody. That was the one thing that Wall Street forgot. And I heard the uh, CEO of Goldman Sachs actually um in an article to the Financial Times, Lloyd Blankfein said that you know uh, investment banks. He's talking about the five big ones, and the commercial banks that we're now bailing out uh, as we speak, forgot their obligation to the greater public. And I don't think they forgot it. I don't think they actually ever knew it. At least not in my lifetime. <laughs> the other thing they about forgot, <laughs> yeah. they forgot uh, the people. I think that was a mouthful that he said. He's the only CEO that has even mentioned that. And um, I'm not sure if he really believes it or if he's saying it, but either one is a good start because he's acknowledging that, as opposed to Jamie Dimon who said, oh, it's the little people's fault, the people that are struggling to pay their bills and their medical bills and put their kids through school, it's their fault, when actually his own bank was levered at 30 times its value. Lloyd Blankfein is saying, no, we, we dropped the ball here. We we weren't paying attention. We were not connected to the public interest because now I think what the biggest recognition of ordinary people and, and business itself is, and Wall Street, of course, because Wall Street really doesn't exist in any form that it existed six months ago. But what we're tr- starting to see... Oh, really? Is, you mean Wall Street has changed that much? Oh, my gosh. It's unrecognizable. Yeah, I think Peter can tell you a lot about that because um, and he's right on the front lines. So I'm a little bit behind the scenes. And, yeah, I'd uh, like to know. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's unrecognizable. Yeah, yeah it is. Uh, it, the model is completely shot, <laughs> uh, kaput. Um, so, for example, the the when you talk about bonuses, when you hear people talking about bonuses, one one who isn't on Wall Street thinks of a bonus as, uh, well, here's a pat on the back and an extra couple of bucks to put in your pocket because you did a good job. But that's not really what bonuses are on Wall Street. Bonuses are what the guys who trade uh, stocks and bonds work for every year. And they, you know, they're very large. I mean, they're multi-million dollars. And the salaries are relatively small, a couple hundred thousand dollars. None of these people can live on their salaries, and they expect to be paid based on the profit and the revenues that they generate every year. And so the incentive is for someone to create as much revenue as they possibly can without thought to you know how they're doing it so they can maintain their level of lifestyle. So if you've been used to making $2 million a year every day you go to work, you're going to think about how can I make enough trading profit to make sure that I get at least that $2 million or or if not more. And so I've spoken to dozens and dozens of people after this crisis that have told me I've received no bonus and I cannot live on my salary and I can't pay my mortgages and keep my kids in private school. And so, that, again, that comes back to the whole system being so far out of balance and the profit margins that Wall Street has been able to experience have been so blown out of proportion and they're starting to narrow down. See, a lot of them, uh, you know, a lot of people um in on Wall Street lived on their credit cards because um bonus is really their salary. It's what they're n- 9 out of 10 times they're guaranteed a certain amount of money if they made $500,000 last year, they're going to make $500,000 this year. That's implicit. And if they even do better in profits, they'll they'll make more. What's surprising is that they didn't expect to lose money when the companies lost money. Yeah. But it's not just that model. It's that the inve- investment banking doesn't exist right now on Wall Street. So we talk about what changed on Wall Street. There were five investment banks. There's only two left, and they're marginal at best because now they're trading as banks. 
and banks, even in the United States, have more rules than investment banks do. In other words, they can, they can only do uh, 25% of their gross profits um, can be uh, used for any kind of securities activities, brokerage activities, um, underwriting activities. And actually, the securities market, which is um, what got us into this mess, it doesn't exist right now. That's what the government um, is trying to do, what uh, President Obama and Geithner, uh, Treasury Secretary Geithner, are trying to do right now with the TELF program. They're trying to jumpstart the securities um, industry again, which is to pool consumer loans, mostly consumer loans and corporate loans, and write, underwrite them into big packages of securities. Now, since that blew up, even Wall Street itself doesn't know who to trust. So all of the big firms are gone. Even Goldman is not really a player right now. You know? Well, what happened to Goldman and Morgan Stanley was after Lehman filed for bankruptcy, Goldman and Morgan were afraid that they were going to be next, and so was Merrill Lynch. Well, Merrill Lynch was bought by Bank of America, so Bank of America is a commercial bank. Goldman applied to become a commercial bank, as did Morgan Stanley. And so they are now officially commercial banks. They're no longer investment banks. Well, there's an interesting article on the front cover of the New York Times just this morning. Um, I think it was yesterday, uh, Sunday's paper, where um, uh, all the big uh, the banks, the stars from the big banks, where are they going? They're either out of work or they're going to these little tiny banks. And, and Peter um, is working with a lot of these little tiny banks where the former Wall Street stars are jumping ship and uh, they're starting new broker dealers. They want to start new investment banks. So it's it's a totally different Wall Street. It's not anything like what it was before. Not at all. And any kind of um, false bravura or bravado of strength isn't real. It's totally fictitious. Um, Morgan Stanley doesn't really exist right now. People are jumping ship like crazy. Nobody wants to be there. Nobody wants to be at Bank of America. Nobody wants to, you know, what the former Merrill Lynch stars, they're all leaving en masse. Goldman people, who you couldn't get out of Goldman because they were so profitable, they're all leaving. And they're all starting up either their own little firms, actually quite a few of them, which is really kind of nice when you think about it, are going into the... Um, uh, common good public work sector. You know, they're becoming foundation managers or going into nonprofit work to try to give back. Because uh, I think so many people on Wall Street who were not directly involved in this debacle were ashamed and horrified themselves. And I think that um, quite a few of them want to right the wrongs that their colleagues did and, um, you know, devote themselves to nonprofit work to, to people that are actually suffering directly that had absolutely nothing to do with it, like construction workers and anyone involved in um, even indirectly, uh, indirectly, I mean, a lot of the nonprofits are laying off people. A lot of the schools are laying off people in New York. I, I know they're thinking about laying off, you know, a, a few thousand city workers again. These people had nothing to do with it, but they're going to be affected by it all over the country, all over the world. No. You know, I'm sitting here in awe and, and listen like I'm listening in a way to fairy tales. You know, is this possible? Has this really be go been going on? Because I'm one of the general public. I used to uh, trust my stockbroker like everyone else, and then I found out, no, I cannot trust my stockbroker anymore <laughs> because evidently, he is also running a business which is making money, you know, making commissions. So uh, it, it seems, you know, I don't know what one should invest in anymore. What is a good place? Where should one put the money nowadays? Well, is it something called a mattress? <laughs> <laughs> I heard about you that, have yes. Bed. If you have a lot of money, you got plenty of room for the ma for the mattress. I think we're going to see a um, step back to old-fashioned integrity and value. So anything, any company that you see that provides value, direct value of an essential good for people, um, human lives that enhance their lives, you have to go by what enhances a person's life, uh, life. So I wouldn't necessarily put my money in Exxon right now. And I think in terms of um, brokers and investment managers, 
um, you know, really do some due diligence and find people that are of integrity. I mean, not just recommend people like Bernie Madoff was recommended to all these other people because he made it people of fortune. We saw how that worked out. But find yeah. out what their character is. What What's their integrity? What do they do for the greater community? That's the first thing. I'm sure there are really good people out there. We happen to know some of them. Um, and then uh, make sure you invest in value products. You know, don't invest... One of the things that we invested in, and we personally did this too, we invested in Wall Street. You know, you're talking about um, a an industry that bases its money on some phantom profits. I think it's much better to sink your money into healthcare systems, to sink your money into um, products that create, ultimately that create housing. Housing's down now. I, I think that might be a good long-term investment. But it's it's different from the old model. The old model was how can I make the most profit for the least amount of effort? I think now we're going back to creating value, and you're going to have to look more to um, you know what enhances human lives. That's where we're going. I'd invest in green energy right now. But I, I also want to say and yeah. uh, follow up on what Monica's saying is you know if you look at the Bernie Madoff uh, scandal. And the people that were hurt by that, most of them did not do their due diligence. They did not check Bernie Madoff out. I know many people that refused to invest with him because they went to him and they said, how are you making these returns in good markets and bad? And the answers that they got were insufficient for them, and so they decided not to invest. And, you know, one of the... One of the most important things that we will take out of this crisis is that we are all responsible to ourselves and to others. But if we're going to make an investment, we need to check it out. We need to do our homework. We need to look and figure out who are these people, how are they doing this, what are they doing. That's the most important thing we can do going forward. But I think it's even more than that. Uh, That's absolutely true personally for every one of us. What we're trying to do with um, Goodbait, is uh, create, as Peter said before, awareness. But we're really trying to inspire people to take hold of the economy that they live in, which is now a global economy. One of the things, we can sit here forever and talk about what Wall Street did, but um, I like to also talk about what ordinary people did. One of the main points and purposes of Goodby is to involve business and consumer citizen consumers, the general public, as a partnership, because we really are a partnership. That's what we're seeing here. I think most people would say, oh, my goodness, you know, uh, Citibank borrowed 35 times its assets, and we personally have to pay for that. Then you see the direct connection to Wall Street. Um, not just that, I mean, there's massive layoffs. I think that Caterpillar, which is um, a tractor company that sells tractors all over the world, just laid off 20,000 people. You're starting to see the connections between the center of the financial system and ordinary life. And we all thought, okay, we just give our money over if you're investing in 401ks or if you have your own portfolio. We just give our money over and let somebody else do it. The whole reason we're here is the indifference of the money lenders, of the money people, of the financial system itself, the big uh, investment banks, the big commercial banks, and in combination with the apathy of the general public. It's apathy and indifference that brought us here, indifference of the business and apathy of the public. And I, we're trying to inspire both to meet in the middle we're trying to connect Wall Street and all of the business managers and all of the money makers and the whole um, leaders of the financial system, including the people in government, to not be indifferent about how they create money, to understand, like Lloyd Blankfein said, their greater public obligation and to humanize making money again. We said this eight years ago, business is personal, and we can't say that enough. It affects human lives, so we have to know that when we're making money, we are directly and indirectly responsible for how that affects other people. And as a general public, you know, I, I was talking to this gal. Her father is a BMW mechanic, so he's a, a working-class man who makes a decent living, and um, his his livelihood is now threatened, and he's probably in his early 50s. And he said... Um, you know, it's not my problem. She's 24, and she's more of an activist now um, because she's inherited this economic crisis. She's a Ph.D. candidate in New York that, um, you know, we know very well. 
and she said, uh, my father said, you know, it's not my problem. I can't change anything. I can't help anything. Let them do it. And that them being the leaders of the country. And that is exactly why we're here. If people found they had a voice, if they felt powerful, if they didn't hand their money over to somebody, whether it's Bernie Madoff or your broker or Goldman Sachs or your senator or your entire Congress or your president, prime minister, whomever it is, if you took the matter in your hand and we formed a citizen coalition, it would be a completely different world. And that's what we're trying to do at Goodby. That's very good. Of course, it lies in human nature, I feel, in, in our society just to, to go to someone else and allow them to do the job for us. I mean, it's like what I do with the Internet problems. I have I have a young guy who does it for me because I feel I don't have the time to take my own responsibility uh, into this. And I see this is this is what we all do, and we do it with our investments, and we give it to someone who we understand knows better than we do. So it's it's a matter of not appreciating ourselves or our own knowledge and not giving having the confidence in ourselves. I of course, we could all go and learn a little bit more, but, uh, you know, we, we don't take the time. So I feel guilty of that myself. I don't think it's just, um, you know, not taking the time, not having confidence. I think it's what we're learning now is that we have a responsibility. We didn't, you know, it's, it's sure you don't understand the technical aspects of things, neither do I, and I do depend on other people for it. But I also want to know who I'm dealing with. The same way it is with, you know, environmental sustainability and global warming. I mean, now we can't just say, oh, government, you take care of it. We have to use our own composting. We have to do our own recycling. We, we have to make sure we turn our lights out and find other alternative ways to um, run our lives, you know, even if it's rather inconvenient. You know, it's part of a whole overall yeah. shift in the way we think. It's true. Everything has to be back in balance again. And exactly what you talk about, uh, the environment and how we have to take our own uh, responsibility for that, I'm going to speak about that exactly in my next show. <laughs> so, uh, And to show uh, the world what we can actually do on our own. But I feel, again, America is so way behind uh, the rest of the world, uh, or the Western world, I would say how to deal with the environment and uh, recycling and everything else. So um, now going back to being in balance in the business world, and that is what you are active uh, helping us with, and how can you bring in a meaning, meaningful spiritual life into the race of making money? Can you combine that at all? Can you be spiritual and also making money? Yes, you absolutely can. It is the common denominator that exists within business and all we need to do is make people aware of the fact that the connection that business has to the greater greater humanity really i mean if you just think about if we started to teach this in high school and in colleges about the human connection in business how the fact that business touches every person's lives if you imagine life without business you imagine we'd be you know rubbing two rocks together in a tent trying to get heat in the winter uh, I mean, it, it, business touches each and every one of our lives in profound ways, in ways that we just take for granted. And so what we're going to experience here is a re-education of those who lead our businesses. We're all human beings. When you think about a big corporation, a Fortune 500 corporation, what is that? What, I mean, what exactly is a corporation? It's comprised of people human beings. I used to, when Lehman went bankrupt, I, I was interviewing all the guys that, you know, had lost their jobs, and I said, what, asked them, what, what are the markets? And the definition was always the same, you know, people come, coming together con, to conduct business. And I said, well, bring it back down to another lower common denominator than that. And they looked at me, and they didn't understand what I was saying. And when I said, well, it's two people, right? It's people. And they were like, well, yeah. And so what's that mortgage bond? What does that actually consist of, that bond that you're trading on your screen that's flashing up and down? That's 9,000 families attached to that to that security. And depending on what you do with that and how you position it in the market, those 9,000 families are going to be directly affected by what you do. So, 
understanding the connection is the first step. And, you know, we're all pretty smart people. We all get it. And I think what I'm positive about and what I'm excited about is the fact that if you look at slavery, if you look at women's rights, if you look at children, child labor, these all started as, as ideas and words, and words are very powerful, and they create change. And so the more people that talk about this and the more people that are aware of this and share it with their friends and go to our website and get these new ideas that are, that are being born out of this tragedy, the better chance we have of creating another model that says business connects the human experience. Yes, of course, business is part of what we are. We have to live. It's just making a living. So um, are we going back to barter trade at all? Do you feel we're doing that? Uh, I think there'll be an element of understanding that it's mutual concern. I don't know about barter. I think maybe on an individual basis, uh, maybe even in terms of essential services through the international community. I think what we're, what you know, if we define spiritual spirituality in a in a specific way, I mean, there's so many different religions, so many different spiritual beliefs, so many different um, ideas of what that means. One common or universal spiritual um, concept that we can understand is shared concern for humanity and nature. And I think that if we have a shared concern for humanity and nature in business um, and understand that everything we do in life, everything we do in life is for a greater purpose than ourselves, as we can see it, even if we don't believe in a greater purpose in our lives or in, in the world, um, for those of us that do, we have to include every single action that we take and understand that it has a, a higher purpose, a greater meaning. And if you don't believe that, you can actually see, um, you don't believe that in a spiritual sense, you can see that in a practical way, because everything these people did in Wall Street went back to a greater purpose, and that would be the health and welfare of the global economy. I mean, so every single thing they did, every time they traded a security, it had a greater purpose than they understood it. And I think that's what we're recognizing now, and that's where spirituality comes in. There's no separation between spirituality and anything you do, including your money and making your money and earning your money and safeguarding it. That's very well put. That's very beautifully put. You are now uh, also writing a new book. You wrote the – you had – your book published a few years ago called Spiritual Capitalism. What is the name of the new book and when can we find it and where? <laughs> oh, we're in the process of writing it right now, um, so uh-huh. it probably won't be out for another, oh, probably till the beginning of next year, and it's called The Fall of the Money God. And it's how to um, how the economic crisis is leading us to a global transformation of um, business. Do you feel the war that we uh, have begun in Iraq has influenced the the economy in this country? Without a doubt, without a doubt. I mean, it's. I think it's influenced our whole um, a psychological makeup in this country. Um, I think it's been a senseless um, destruction of human life, and I think we're seeing a parallel of that in the economy, a senseless destruction of, you know, um, human quality of life. So I think that not only has it been a drain on our financial system, it's an endless drain. It's almost difficult to, you know, extricate ourselves from there. And I think that's what we're seeing, that every single thing we do has has a long-term effect and we are not operating in a vacuum anymore. Now that we're in this global economy and this global um, consciousness, every single thing we do has to be thought of and not just about, well, what's in it for me, but how does this affect every innocent person around the globe? I think what we took away from 9-11 was more an attitude of protecting innocent people around the globe and trying to enlighten them to saying, don't let um, politicians and financial institutions run your life for you. Become part of the change that we all need to be part of. Yes. Um, so we are going back to actually the individual human being in a way that we maybe didn't do before. 
So, uh, and also that we are getting back to what is really important, and that is what you evidently are talking about, isn't it? Yep. Yes. It certainly is. You know, if you if you lost everything, if you lost um, all of your wealth, and everything disappeared in a day, like it did for some of the people through this economic crisis, um, and through Bernie Madoff, and through all of the other things that happened. You know, what do you have left? And that's really the question we all have to answer on an everyday basis. That's the question we answered on 9-11, and that's been running us for the, for the last eight years. And I think that's the question the world's being asked right now. Like, what kind of world do we really want to create? Yeah. Well, our show is now over. I would like to thank you very much, Monica Mitchell Ressler and Peter Ressler from Wall Street in New York. I know you're very busy making tours and lectures uh, all over all over the world or all over America. <laughs> what do we have? Oh, yeah, all over all over the world, actually. All over, yeah. mm-hmm. That's wonderful. So um, I thank you very, very much for being on the show with me. And good luck in your endeavors. Your ideas are fantastic. I well, really we feel honored and privileged you. to have had the opportunity to share this with you. Yeah, we love you. We love your work, and uh, we wish you luck uh, on your tour. Thank you so very much. Maybe our paths will cross somewhere <laughs> in Central Europe. <laughs> so thank you again, and uh, let me know when your new book is out. I would love to read it. Thank you, Helena. Thank you. Thank you so much, Peter and Monica. You were great guests. And I love the inside information. (laughs) (laughs) Anytime. Okay, we'll keep you posted. Thank you so much. Right. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.